Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, can I help you find something? Librarians specialize in helping you find what you were looking for, and sometimes what you didn't know you were looking for. Thank you for joining me as I talk to my guests about all things library, including the books inside them. I'm Julie Chavez, and this is Ask a Librarian. Hello, friends. This is the last episode of Ask a Librarian. If you are listening right now, thank you. This podcast has been the most surprising joy I've enjoyed every conversation. I've found some nugget of value from each one of my guests, and I've been so grateful to discover books I never would have found otherwise. I'd like to thank my producer, Chelsea, who very kindly didn't mock the spreadsheet I sent her, even though it might as well have been written in crayon. I owe huge thanks to Steve and Ryan of Textures Sound, who have been gracious and patient, and they taught me about how to minimize mouth sounds. And I'm deeply grateful to Zibby Owens, who created this opportunity for me and believed it would be a fit. But most of all, I'm thankful for you. Please know I'm deeply honored that you have spent your precious minutes with me and that you've been part of this story. Hearing from you is what made everything so full and fun and wonderful. Please be sure to keep in touch. You can sign up for my newsletter at juliewritewords.com, and I'll periodically send you ramblings about my various triumphs, along with minor complaints about my husband and teenage sons. I'm so happy to report that I'll get to keep interviewing as I'm a guest host for Zibby on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This episode that you're about to listen to will appear on both podcasts, and it's with my final guest, the lovely Fiona Davis. Fiona was one of my very first guests, and she's one of the kindest, most generous literary citizens out there. Getting to know her has been a true privilege for me. I'm so happy to welcome her back to speak about her latest book, The Spectacular. For those of you who don't already know, Fiona is the New York Times best-selling author of seven historical fiction novels set in iconic New York City buildings, including The Magnolia Palace, The Dollhouse, The Address, and The Lions of Fifth Avenue, which was a Good Morning America book club pick. Her novels have been chosen as One Book, One Community Reads, and her articles have appeared in publications like The Wall Street Journal and Oh! The Oprah Magazine. She first came to New York as an actress, but fell in love with writing after getting a master's degree at Columbia Journalism School. Her books have been translated into over 20 languages, and she's based in New York City. I'm also happy to report that she just inked a two-book deal, so there will be more coming. Friends, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Fiona as much as I did, and thank you for being with me. Here's my conversation with Fiona. Miss Fiona Davis, welcome. I'm so happy to be talking with you today. 
It is so nice to chat with you again. Thank you so much. I feel so excited. I just went back in my calendar to see when I talked to you, and it was on January 14th of 2022. Wow, yes. I know. And we talked just barely about the beginnings of the spectacular, and it was so fun for me. It felt like such a full circle moment because you were one of my very first guests on Ask a Librarian, and... I have a vivid memory of calling my sister and being like, guess who's going to come on the podcast? And Fiona Davis. And we talked about it. And I said, and I emailed her. It was just so exciting. So being able to interview you for Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books is a gift. And I'm just always happy to spend time with you. Yes. And you have such great questions. It's, It's my absolute delight. Oh, good. I'm glad. Well, I'm glad that you have a high bar for that now. So hopefully I can disappoint. We'll get, we'll get started. Well, I think your books, too, are so easy to have questions about because you've been writing historical fiction for a number of years. But really, I feel like we talked about this before, where it was not only historical fiction, it's really centered around buildings in New York City, which is just such a cool premise. So when we spoke last, the Magnolia Palace was about to come out. And then now, today, we're talking about the spectacular. And I want to start with the cover. I don't think I've seen a more beautiful cover recently. I love it. Were you involved in that at all? Did you have any say? Thank you so much. Yeah, you know, I when we talked about it, I, I wanted it to be a little different from your typical historical fiction cover, which is usually a woman, her back turned to you, or if, <laughs> yes. if you can see the side of her head, she looks very wistful. And, you know, I think those covers are great, and I have some that I absolutely cherish. That have yeah. been designed by Dutton. But this just felt different because it's a bit of a mix. It's historical fiction, it's a romance, it's a bit of a thriller. And so I wanted something that showed that. And so by just having the building, which is Radio City, in all its neon glory, you know, with that Art Deco soaring marquee, I, I felt like it just summed everything up and it felt powerful and dynamic and something just a little unusual from your historical fiction genre. Yeah, I think they did a perfect job with that. And you're exactly right. I think the color palette also, like you said, with the neon, but then kind of what's coming up from the building, it just is so eye-catching. And I think it really fits nicely with the themes of the book, too, and the Rockettes and all the things. So kudos on that. Way to go. Cover team at Dutton Books. Very pleased. Yes, the art department headed by Christopher Lynn there, they rock. Oh, amazing. Okay, so it has a stunning cover. Tell people what is The Spectacular about, and then we'll get into how you chose it. Sure. So The Spectacular takes place in the 1950s, and it's about a young woman who's a dance teacher, and she she decides she wants to become a Rockette, and this is going against her father's wishes. And so she auditions and she gets in, and it's about her journey finding her own feet you know, learning how to dance with this precision dance troupe, which is not easy, and and really discovering herself. And then at the same time, there's a series of bombings going on in New York that are based on actual an actual bomber. Yeah. And and so she gets caught up in the hunt for this bomber for very personal reasons, and is teamed up with a resident psychiatrist named Peter. And together, they, they're kind of an odd couple. He's very introverted and brilliant, and she's very dynamic and creative and outgoing. And together, they have to try and track down what's going on and, and pretty much save the city of New York. And I, I like to say it's just a, a mix. It's romance. It's thriller. It's a little bit of everything. 
And it also gives people a really fun backstage glimpse at the life of a Radio City Rockette. I think that's, I mean, obviously that's a perfect description of it, but it's such a fun book to read. I think it's, I think it's going to have such broad appeal because of exactly what you're saying. There are elements for everyone in it. And so I feel like you've done such a good job with creating that. And I love its origin story, which is you received a letter from a former Rockette who was married to, I was reading it today, and he ran, her husband ran the stage lighting for the stage shows. And so she reaches out to you. Was that like, had that ever happened before that you'd gotten a letter like that? I've gotten, you know, it was an email from my website and I've gotten emails where people have said, oh, you should consider this building. Mm. Or this one, okay. or what about this one? And I get those a lot, which I love because it means readers are really engaged and want to, you know, be part of it. Yeah. But this was different because it was right when I didn't have any idea what I was going to write next. And I was really panicking a little about yeah. okay, where where do I turn? And so she wrote an email and she said, I'm in my 80s. I live in South Carolina. I'm a former Rockette. And if you want to know all about Radio City Music Hall, you should give me a call. And so, of course, I did. Her name's Sandy. And she was lovely. And you're right. She met her husband, Bob. They were both 19. And he ran the lighting board at Radio City. They've been together ever since. Amazing. And we just had this great phone call. And she had all of this interesting archival material that she'd saved. So programs and photographs. And here's the daily schedule. And that was really what grounded me and made me think, okay, I can do this because I have the I have the source. I have the background material. Yes. And I know nothing about dance and I am not a dancer, but <laughs> I think I'm going to give it a go. You write it so well, though. I mean, I I found myself thinking as I was reading, I thought, was Fiona a dancer? And I just don't remember that. Like, No, you know what's so funny is yesterday, I, last night I had a dream that I had to go to Europe for a dance conference. And I was like, <laughs> but I don't dance. <laughs> so you can tell where it's all seeping into me. But I was lucky enough, you know, having been a journalist, I know when I don't know something, how to find people who do. So I interviewed a number of Rockettes, some who had danced on the stage recently, some who were in their 80s, who danced there in the 50s and 60s. And the thing about dancers is they tend to be really eloquent. Hmm. I, I don't know if it's some kind of mind-body connection, but they're able to put into words what it's like to dance and what it's like to be on stage in a way that was really made my job so much easier because they fleshed out, okay, here's what happened and here's what you had to do and this is what you had to be careful about. And and that way it makes it, me sound like I know what I'm talking about. Well, <laughs> I'm happy for all of it because it works. <laughs> it's working. They did a good job. That's a really interesting question. I wonder if they have, that makes me wonder about like the brain science for dancers. You know what I mean? If they could sort of scan their brains, how they are lit up differently than people in other professions, you know? Yeah. I think that the neuroplasticity where, you know, when you have to have your body move in a certain way, it keeps your mind so active and engaged. Yes. That, I think that just carries on. I think you're exactly right. And, you know, I just did a wall squat earlier while I was reading a book for like 30 <laughs> seconds. So it's pretty much the same. I mean, exactly. yeah, same. I do, I do that when I'm waiting for the elevator. Yes. It's I'm perfect. Hoping, yeah. You're hoping that those will all add up to something? Yeah. And, and I hope it like start, I'm on the 10th floor. So I hope it's like at 11. So I don't have to hold it. For <laughs> <two>. <laughs> and not one. 
That's such a good idea because then you're forced into it, right? You're just stuck. <laughs> yeah, I was reading something the other day about menopause and I was like, oh, I need to do more random things like this, which my children can mock me for. I don't I don't know. I don't know why I'm trying. It just feels like an uphill battle, but hey, whatever. <laughs> yeah. I really... You, there's a line early on in the book where you talked about Marion tried to explain, Marion being the main character, she tried to explain how magical it all was, but she found herself unable to find the words. So once you started the research, did you get to tour Radio City? Like, did you get to do some of that? And did you find yourself with that same sort of feeling about any of it? Or was it easy for you to put into words? Yeah, I mean, honestly, just, I, I was able to get a, a tour and just standing on that stage and looking out into that you know, there's 6,200 seats out wow. there. It's enormous. And and so you, yeah, your heart's in your throat, even just standing there doing nothing. Mm-hmm. And so that was very helpful. And, and it was helpful to get a sense of what it was like backstage because surrounding the theater are seven floors of offices and rehearsal spaces. And, you know, back in the 50s, when the book is set, there was a lounge for the dancers. There was a dormitory when they had to stay over if they rehearsed late into the night. Yeah. Um, There was a costume department, a shoe and hat department, a poster department. It was this city that went on behind. And it it really is like a maze. It's it's quite something. So that was very helpful just to understand spatially how it was laid out back then. That's perfect. I loved that scene where Bunny was giving her a tour because I could kind of see it as it was coming together. And just the machines that exist behind the magic, wherever that is. I find that so fascinating how those are built and kept. That also, when you were talking about Sandy having kept all those materials, that makes me realize that I am, I'm a total purger. I am throwing everything away constantly. And so when you say that, I'm like, oh man, what am I going to regret later? I don't know. (laughs) It's exciting. (laughs) I know. I know. But your children won't resent you when they have to clean out your house. So it's so true. I should leave them a well-appointed note that explains why they can love me more because exactly. they will not have to rent a 30-foot dumpster to throw <laughs> exactly. away all my crap. Yeah, exactly. that's a good point. Okay, I like that. Thanks. Thanks for that paradigm shift, Fiona. <laughs> what was, when you were doing the research, was there anything that surprised you? You know, I was surprised at the sisterhood of mm. these dancers. Because, you know, I'd ask, well, was there any infighting or, you know, anything like that going on behind the scenes with all these dancers who are smushed into the dressing rooms and, you know, basically living together for three or four weeks at a time until they got a week off. And and they all said, no, absolutely not. It was just a period of joy and freedom. And especially for these women who in the 50s, you could either be really a, a nurse, a teacher or a secretary. And yes. here they were independent, making a living, earning their own money, you know, dancing on this iconic theater stage. And they just enjoyed it so much. And also learning that the man who founded the Rockettes, whose name was Russell Markert, was just beloved. He he was a real father figure. And I think his dynamic and the way he moved in the world really set it up so that these women could really join forces and and become fast friends for life. It sounds like, yes, he created the perfect conditions for them to flourish. And that I think I had never considered that it was so countercultural at that time for him to do that and provide that space for them and for them to be earning their own money. I mean, there were so many times I put this book down and I was like, man, being a woman in the 50s, not quite the business. 
No, I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't open your own checking account. You couldn't have a credit card. Like you, you were so limited in your choices. And one of my favorite memories of one of the Rackets shared with me was walking down Fifth Avenue in the middle of the night, locked arm in arm, singing at the top of their lungs. Oh, I love that. Yeah. What a gift and what a memory for them. Oh, I'm sure it's fun to hear that. Do you enjoy the interviews more or the like reading on your own in terms of research? What do you like the most? I love the interviews. There's just nothing like it. And and you learn so many fun things. Like one mentioned that the conductor, one of the conductors on the last show of the day, because they did four shows a day. Which um, every time I read that was like, that is insane. Yeah. 600 kicks a day. Oh, never mind our wall sits. Yeah, right. <laughs> Here we are. I hope it's only one floor away. I don't think we're cut out to be rockets. No. I just, no. I don't think so. Okay, continue. I have such respect. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, last show of the day. Yeah, so the last show of the day, the, this conductor would speed up so he could catch his train. <laughs> and so these poor women. And it's just that kind of detail that you learn makes it feel like, okay, this is going to be really specific. And that I hope really anchors the reader in the story and, and makes them feel like, okay, they're confident that they're, you know, not only learning something interesting, but having a really good time doing it. Absolutely. I really liked also the the way that you explained the Rockettes' need for precision, but that that precision had to trump their individual expression. And especially as dancers, like the tension between that, that they have to have talent and expression, but not too much. I I was fascinated by that. That and the fact that they don't touch. I still yeah. can't figure that out. Yeah. And so in the kick line, you know, it looks like they're all hanging on to each other with their hands behind each other's backs. But in fact, there's a good few inches of space between the palm of one's hand and the back of the other dancer. Which makes sense for safety. As soon as I read it, I thought, okay, I see that. But I, what an illusion. Yes. Yeah. And that's what it's about. It's all about this illusion that they're completely the same dancer. Yes. You know, one after another. And so Marion, the main character, is based on an actress named Vera Allen, who okay. was a big movie star. But she started as a Rockette. And she just couldn't fit in because if if Russell Markert wanted her to do a kick, you know, shoulder height, hers would be eye height. She just mm. couldn't help herself but overdo it. And she eventually quit before she was fired and went on to become this famous, famous actress. She was in White Christmas and all these wonderful movies. And I just thought that's an interesting dynamic. You know, that is the question that the book raises is what is the cost of really suppressing your own individuality and creativity for the good of the greater whole, whether it's a precision dance line or working for a major corporation? You know, when do you make your voice heard and when do you fit in in order to, you know, make the job work? It's a really deep question. And I think you do it also for Mary and the main character, not only in that piece of her life, but in other parts of her life. And so that really put me in a mind of thinking through, gosh, if that's me, how am I making, how am I weighing these things? So I think the the way that you did that and seeing these choices that she has to make that are not easy or straightforward, I think was really powerful. I really enjoyed that. I was super invested. I was really dying to know what was going to happen. Oh, good, good. Okay, that's great. Yeah, it was, it really did feel very thriller-esque. I was definitely turning the pages. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. I have a question for you. What's your least favorite part of research? Like, what's the thing that you think I'd rather do less <laughs> than do this? You know, it's, I think in general, there's this general anxiety that descends when I've picked the building, I know I want to do it. And then I, I get a legal pad and I start writing on the very first page, all of the sources I need to do. And it's like following, you know, a map where I'll, I'll watch a clip on YouTube and that will send me to a book. And then that will send me to a person okay. to call. And then it just grows longer and longer. And I'm just riddled with anxiety thinking I'll never understand this. There's so much I'm missing and and that's just a, an awful feeling. And that lasts for at least a month as I'm getting my, my feet wet. And then after a while, it starts to sink in. And then I hit a tipping point uh, where I, I either have like the first line in my head or I have a really good idea of the character or a, a plot twist. And that's when I know it's time to pull back from the research and start focus on the on the plotting. And so, yeah, I'd say it's just that general feeling of panic is the worst thing in the world. <laughs> and and can I, you know, will there be something here? Once I've done all this work, will I have something to play with? And so far, every book I have. Which is a wonderful thing. But that is good to hear. I thank you for sharing that because I think that we do talk about often, you know, the magic involved in writing a book and these things that do come together. And like you're saying, they often do, but there is always an element of, is this going to work? I mean, you just, you don't know there's such an act of faith in it. So I didn't even think about that where you're really plugging in a lot of hours. Yeah. You have to front load. Yeah. You're feeding your head is the way I feel, you know, are you a delight to live with during that month of panic? Would you say? As long as I have a glass of wine, you know, (laughs) at the end of the day, I'm fine. (laughs) Good. Yeah. No, it's probably not because I'm uh, you know, it's all I want to talk about. And oh, I learned this today. And did you know this? And oh, you know, yeah, bouncing things off people and and just sharing everything I've learned and trying to let it settle in my head. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like you really try to inhabit that world. So your process is, you know, you're really fully putting yourself, immersing yourself there. And yeah, you just have to drag friends and family members down with you. I mean. <laughs> Right? I just feel like that's what they have to do to love us. They're you're welcome. They're there for. Exactly. You're welcome. I'm part of your life. And that means you're gonna listen to me say the word book a million times. (laughs) (laughs) I really okay, so here's the question now. Have you received any more emails or letters for your next project? I mean, are you already working on the next thing? Because I feel like you're always, I mean, you 
you turn and burn, my friend. You get through that month long of panic and you just get it done. I do. And I think that's only partly because there's so much in my head I have to write quickly or I'll forget it. Okay, that makes sense. No, sure. Yeah. Not because I'm a fast writer necessarily, but that I just want to make sure I get it on the page. Yeah. So it takes about a year and a half in between books. So, and it takes, you know, once you've turned in a, a manuscript, it takes about six months before it comes out. So you have yes. that that downtime. And so I am, I this is not from a letter I received, but I the next book is going to be set at the Met Museum. Oh my gosh, so yeah, exciting. So I just got back from a trip to Egypt to do some mummy research and uh, some Egyptian artifact research, uh, which was amazing. And so it'll yeah. be partly set in the Egyptian wing from the point of view of a, an assistant curator in 1978. Okay. And it'll jump back to Egypt in the 1930s. And it's also from the point of view of an assistant to the Met Gala in 1978. And so you've got this very glamorous you know, party of the year thing going on. And then this, you know, Egyptian um, artifacts and and mummies. So it, it, I like the contrast. So we'll see where it goes. Absolutely. Can you finagle an invitation to the Met Gala out of this? I feel like you can, right? It didn't work this year, but let's keep our fingers crossed. Okay. Yeah. Let me know if you need me to vouch for you. I know <laughs> ones I know ones of people and I'm happy to <laughs> connect you to them. <laughs> As long as I can just wear, wear, you know, my my normal outfit. I don't know if I could, you know, wear feathers or spangles. I don't know if that will work. Uh, those outfits are next level, I have to say. Anytime I look at them, I'm like, and I don't understand fashion. The end. No, exactly. exactly. <laughs> right. I wanted to ask you, so one of the things that you talk about in the book is Parkinson's. And because one of the characters is suffering from Parkinson's or has been diagnosed. And obviously that was in the 1950s. Now, I know that you have shared publicly also that you have been diagnosed with Parkinson's. And I'm so glad that you share that. I actually have the Michael J. Fox documentary on my list because you had recommended it. So I can't wait to watch it. What was, so for you, how was writing about that? What did, was there anything you found for yourself in writing about it and in including it in the book? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, what what happened to me was in in August of 2020, I found out that The Lines of Fifth Avenue, which had just been published, had hit the New York Times bestseller list. Mm -hmm. And then the very next day, I went to the doctor and was told I had Parkinson's. Oh my god! And so it was quite the roller coaster and all during lockdown, by the way. So, you know, you you weren't quite sure if you were coming or going. Right. Um, and I'm really lucky in that my symptoms are, are really minor. It's a tremor. It's very well controlled by medication at the moment, um, which is great. But I had a number of people say to me, you know, yes, I have Parkinson's, but I don't want to tell anyone because they'll think I'm old mm. or, you know, I might get fired from my job. And I just thought, you know, this is kind of like breast cancer was 30 years ago where no one talked about it. Yes. And there's definitely power in numbers. And so the more people come out and say, hey, I have Parkinson's and this is what it looks like, um, the more we can mobilize to, you know, deal with research and 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 get some political power uh-huh. going. And so for me, it's helpful always to work out things in a book. And I think yeah. that's why we do creative things. You know, it just helps to process the world around us. And it's not only writing a book, it's if you write, you know, like to write poetry in your off time, or if you sing badly in the shower, anything to express yourself in some way is helpful. 
And so I didn't want it to be a heavy Parkinson's book. So it's just lightly dotted in yes. there. Yes. But I wanted to include it because that was a way for me to process what I was going through and what might be ahead for me. Uh-huh. And and so that was really helpful. And just to help get the word out as well. Yeah. Has that been something that you have, I mean, I'm sure you're a very thoughtful person, so I'm sure to some extent this is happening for you, but is that, you know, do you feel like you find a, a piece about it and then is that disrupted and you have to rebuild it? I mean, how does, how does that process work for you personally? In terms of writing about it? In terms of writing about it and then also just in terms of dealing with that being part of your story. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. There are days where I worry Mm. about the future. Yeah. And then there are days that I'm walking down the streets of New York and thinking I am strong, I am healthy, and I better enjoy this moment. Yeah. (laughs) You know, keep that in your head. Yeah. And, And so in a way, it's a gift because you do appreciate where you are right now because it's pretty good. Yeah. And, you know, and, and luckily there's so much research and so much change going on. Even in the past month, there's been some major breakthroughs mm-hmm. and, you know, over a million people in the U S have it. It's the fastest growing neurodegenerative disease after Alzheimer's. And so, you know, I think that people are are starting to kick and scream and get it noticed and, and get some work done about it. Well, when you included that fact in the author's note, I was surprised by that. I had not that that was the case. So taking a hard left-hand swerve here, just (laughs) right off the street. Yeah, Yeah. right. What is, uh, what's your current advice? And I say current because I feel like I would imagine that over a career like yours, which is extended for so many years and is so well-deserved in that way, I love watching just and seeing the breadth of what you've done and where you're involved. So what's your current best advice for people who want to write a book? Yeah, I would say don't ever think it's too late. I didn't start writing until I was in my late 40s. I don't think I knew that. Yeah, it's yeah. Your I skin. Never... We've talked about this. It's, <laughs> it throws me off. I think you are in your late 40s, Fiona. <laughs> no, I, you know, in fact, when I was younger, I never imagined writing a book. I couldn't imagine doing it. And it was only by doing many different things, being an actress and then a journalist and, and then just thinking, okay, you know, why not try and write a book? What What's there to lose? And, and feeling like, okay, now I have something to talk about because mm-hmm. I've lived life. You know, I've gone through ups and downs and, and now I feel like I have something to say. And so I, I would say, you know, don't feel like you have to publish your first book by the time you're 30 or it's all over. Yeah. Plenty of time to go out and live your life. And then, you know, for me, I just started taking workshops and and learning everything I could and reading books by Anne Lamott and Stephen King on how to write and just letting it seep into me slowly without any pressure to write, you know, the next big thing. And yeah. I just wrote a book that I wanted to read. What a gift. You're so right. It's not too late. And looping all the way back around to the spectacular, it's not 1950 and you can get a credit card if you want. So exactly, (laughs) there's just so much great news here, friends. Like (laughs) I can leave my house without a male relative. You know, it's it's great. It's great. Exactly. Well, I am just, I'm so glad for the person that you are and the author that you are too. What's your greatest hope for... I guess 
this book specifically, let's center it on that. Like what, what's your hope for Spectacular? Oh, I, you know, I hope it reaches readers who might not pick up historical fiction Mm. or readers who might not, you know, who might poo-poo romance. I hope it, I hope it attracts readers who kind of see the cover and think, oh, I, you know, I want to know more about this time period or this building and get sucked into this story. And then on the way, you know, learn something interesting either about themselves or about the world around them. Yeah, I love it. And just one quick aside, too, to that. The criminal profiling piece, we didn't even talk about that. But the idea that that was not, not a, that it came into being at, at one point was, I mean, maybe I'm dumb. I don't know. But I was like, oh, my gosh, that didn't occur to me that that wasn't accepted protocol or science at a certain point. Right. And that's when I, you know, when I'm looking at a book, I'm looking for the surprises in terms of research. Yes. And so learning that this guy set 32 bombs over the course of 16 years and seriously injured 15 people in New York City, putting them in iconic New York City locations, including Radio City twice. And then on top of that, learning that it was solved by using criminal profiling for the very first time. And, the you know, the reaction to the police early on about, well, you don't know that. How can you know that? And then the fact that, you know, it turned out to be exactly right. It, it was, that was for me, the, a really fun hook to include. Absolutely. I'm sure when you hit that one, you were like, and pay dirt, let's do yes. this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, I just want to finish up by saying I've been thinking about my interview with you for months now and so excited to talk to you about this book. But I also have to tell you how grateful I am for you. Because when I look back to our interview on January 14th, you graciously accepted my, you know, cold call invite, like, hey, can I interview you? And you were so lovely. I was sweating like a farm animal in the midst of summer because I was so nervous. (laughs) And you were just so kind and gracious. And I have said that about you so many times since then, like you are a gracious person in the literary world. And without you and the other guests who said yes early on, I wouldn't be able to have unlocked this part of me that I've enjoyed so much. So it's a gift and I'm so grateful. So thank you for just personally, thank you for being part of my world in that way. It's, it's a gift. Oh, thank you. You made my day. And and right back at you. You are a natural at this. This is you you have a gift yourself. And and thank you for for letting us be able to talk about our books. And and I think you pull out the real personality in the interviewee. And that's not easy. So we appreciate that. Well, thank you. I who knew I like to talk so much? Oh, wait, my mom did. She talks about that all the time because I have two talkers and sometimes I say they don't ever shut up. And she's like, wow, Julie, I wonder what that's like (laughs) to have a child who talks constantly. Can't relate. Oh, wait. Yes, I can. (laughs) Well, thank you. I'm wishing all the success and can't wait for your next book. I loved it. When your book comes out, I already have another one to look forward to. Yes. I just have to write it. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Okay. So if you can just get that done, you know, as soon as you can, that'd be great. All right. Thanks so much, Fiona. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Ask a Librarian. As always, it's my joy to share and learn with you. You can follow me on Instagram at juliewritesWords, or you can go to my website, juliewritesWords.com. There you'll find the show notes, 
including all the books mentioned in the episode. See you in the stacks next week. And until then, friends, never go anywhere without a book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.